Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, we have with us um, a very esteemed guest, um, actually a couple guests. Uh, my first guest um, needs no introduction. He is a luminary in the field of interventional cardiology um, and has published seminal work in the field that has transformed the way we practice and take care of patients in the cath lab. Um, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce um, our listeners to Dr. Brilakis. Um, Dr. Manos Brilakis is the Director of Complex Interventions at my alma mater at the Minneapolis Heart Institute in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And with him is his fellow um, uh, and uh, my friend, Mike Megali, uh, who's the first author of uh, the paper which was published in US Cardiology Review, issue 131. Uh, the paper is titled, Role of Drug-Coated Balloons in Small Vessel Coronary Artery Disease. Manos, Mike, uh, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Anchor. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, no, it's my it's my pleasure. So I'm going to begin uh, the podcast by uh, requesting uh, you, Manos, to um, talk to our listeners a bit about um, how you define small vessel coronary artery disease in the cath lab. That's a great a great question. First of all, again, thanks for putting this together, and thanks again for the invitation. The small vessel has to come to some degree subjectivity because, as you know, it's sometimes hard to measure exactly if it's 2.0 or 2.5. But for many studies, and I think in the cath lab, 2.5 millimeters is the usual cutoff. We say if it's 2.5 or less, it's small. I mean, it's the 2.0 that really gets us going or smaller vessels. So it's not 100% accurate, and we don't do QCA, obviously, but a 2.5 or less is a small vessel for most practical purposes. Okay, and um, what percentage of uh, interventions you think are performed in uh, such vessels? Uh, like in, in your practice and overall, if you look at the national trends, uh, what percentage of coronary interventions would fall under the category of small vessel coronary artery disease interventions? I think my, my, my impression is it's more in the 20% range. I know there are some national estimates that even half of them can be um, small. But I think about one in five cases, the vessel is going to be really small. What is useful to define small, understand a little better, is also to do intravascular imaging that gives you actually a quantitative assessment. But I would say one in five cases we do um, are in small vessels. If you look at vessels two or less, that's a little less than that, maybe 10, uh, 10%. Sure. Uh, now, in the paper, you've very eloquently uh, described, you know, some of the traditional risk factors which are associated or commonly associated with small vessel coronary artery disease. And, you know, those, um, you know, include old age, diabetes, uh, peripheral arterial occlusive disease. 
Um, and even lesions which are longer in length, you know, uh, tend to have an association with small vessel disease. Um, my next question uh, surrounds uh, management um, when it relates to small vessel disease. Uh, you know, just walk us through some of the historical perspective, um, you know, with regard to both balloon angioplasty and bare metal stenting uh, for management of such lesions. Sure, I guess I'll do the historical part since I'm the older guy, and then I'll have Mike do the more contemporary part. But the, the treatment of small vessel disease has been and continues to be a challenge. The stenosis rate with balloon angioplasty alone are very high, 50% or more. These are small vessels, obviously, there is less room for recoil, and then there's less room for stenting for forming neointima. And even for the drug eluting stem studies, smaller vessel size, as well as lesion length and stem length, have been associated with higher stenosis rate. So the challenge is with balloon angioplasty that these are small vessels and they have high recoil. And the challenge with bare metal stents is that even a small amount of neointima may be all that is needed to make them occluded. But that's also true for drug eluting stents, although they are much more effective in reducing the amount of neointima there is still uh, the possibility of uh, uh, restenosis because even a 0.5 millimeter of neointima that wouldn't be a big deal in a four-point vessel is much bigger deal in a smaller vessel. I think also we're seeing this a little bit more because we have a more complex disease that comes to the cath lab. We like to say we don't see the type A lesions anymore, but we see a lot of people with diabetes. Diabetes prevalence is increasing, and I think the group that we quite often see this are diabetics, especially women with this very small diffusive disease vessels. So it is a real clinical problem. We do see this most days in the cath lab. And uh, it is a dilemma what to do, which I will let Mike um, describe. But the issue is with balloon alone, which used to be an option. The results are usually not as good. Bare metal stents, I think, are a no-no for these lesions for many reasons but specifically the high rates of uh, instant uh, neointima formation. Then drug eluting stents is what we often do those days in the United States, since we do not have clinical access to the drug-coated balloons, although uh, we've done a few cases of label where we actually take the drug-coated balloon in the coronary, but that's not uh, the best way to go. Uh, sure, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, um, Mike, if you want to talk to uh, our listeners a little bit about uh, uh, you know, the role of uh, first generation, um, and then uh, perhaps both you and Manos can comment on, um, you know, the current second generation drug eluting stents um, for, um, you know, their role in, in the management of small vessel coronary artery disease. Yeah, um, of course, uh, as uh, Dr. Rolakis mentioned, uh, the use of balloon angioplasty and bare metal stents are associated with uh, fairly high risk of restenosis, and uh, this has been reported in multiple studies. And uh, when the first generation regulating stents were, uh, came to the market, this uh, reduced the ISR rate uh, very well, and uh, eventually uh, the decrease of the ISR rates led to better clinical outcomes. However, they were still uh, associated with higher race stenosis, and of course, the first generation, including stents, there were higher incidence of stent thrombosis as well. And there's been uh, this has been seen some registries uh, 
and some studies uh, reporting about 6.5% uh, freeze to noses rate in about a year, and uh, this was still considered very high. And when the second generation regulating stents came up up to like the resolute onyx at two millimeters and uh, drug loading stents that were uh, designed specifically for small vessels. Uh, this also further decreased the ISR rates, but because of the inherent limitation of the small vessels, because they cannot accommodate a certain amount of new and small growth, the uh, second generation blood removing stents were associated with still a pretty high risk of restenosis. And uh, we could see that in the spirit registry of about 5.1% restenosis rate and uh, in one year. And um, when the science is used, the science registry is about 3.1%. So that's, that's when it, uh, it came to the, the, the idea of using drug coated balloons in uh, small vessels became very uh, appealing. Uh, sure. No. I say one more thing at this point. You know, although these numbers actually, to me, these numbers sound actually great. You know, six percent, three percent—that's actually amazing. To be honest, for small vessels or any vessel for that matter, sure. I think those numbers are probably connected. And in reality, what we're seeing is much more than that. Yes, I mean, you know, I think uh, if you look at uh, the overall uh, percutaneous coronary interventions, you, you know, I think uh, the second-generation drug-eluting stents have sort of become you know, the gold standard, right, uh, Manos? Uh, I mean, in, in, in our daily practice, I mean, most, uh, I mean, almost all interventions are either performed with uh, everolimus eluding or zotorolimus eluding um, stents, which are our current generation, uh, you know, drug eluding stents. Um, and, you know, you know, we could talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the polymer um, that is associated with, uh, with stents, um, I know there is um, great utilization, at least in our cath lab, um, of uh, a bio, bio, the biodegradable polymer um, in, in the Avrolimus eluding platinum chromium stent. Um, and one would um, you know, have imagined that with um, the introduction of two O stents um, on, on the shelf, that they would be able to you know, cater to this problem more efficiently, but sounds like it it continues to remain a vexing problem. Uh, am I right in, in that assessment? Yeah, I think you know. Even though the new generation, they have some problems, maybe thinner straps uh, or cyrus coming up now. Uh, so there is some new development. But I think you're right. I think you're right. We didn't really see that much difference in terms of restenosis and reubication rates. Okay. Um, you know, now let's let's just uh, get on to um, the the topic of discussion, which is the use of drug coated balloons. Uh, I know you brought that up earlier in the discussion, Manos. Um, and you know, to our listeners, uh, I'd really urge you to uh, take a look at the paper, uh, particularly Table One. Uh, you know, which uh, basically enlists uh, a list of randomized control trials um, studying the use of drug coated balloons in small vessel coronary artery disease. And you know we have Manos and Mike um, talk to us about um, the use of drug-coated balloons in small vessel disease. So why don't I request you, Manos, to to begin the discussion, uh, and maybe Mike could add on to um, add on to it. 
Sure, absolutely. So the, uh, the, this paper, actually the table has the data on the randomized control trials. We actually might uh, did another nice paper on this with a meta-analysis that also includes the observational studies, uh, which there are several of those as well. But if we look at the uh, meta-analysis that compares essentially drug-coated balloons with uh, drug-eluting stents, except for one of the studies, um, the one by Funatsu that showed the comparison with uh, uncoated balloon angioplasty, Essentially, the outcomes were similar in terms of target vessel revascularization, a major adverse events, binary stenosis. So, in um, uh, essentially, the, all of the five which were comparing with drug eluting stents, and two of them were with the taxo stent, which is no longer being used, and the other two were with the Everolimus and the Zotarolimus stent, so the contemporary platforms we're using. But in both of those examples, the clinical events, both in geographic as well as TLR, TVF, MACE, all of those events were similar in the two groups. Um, there was the one paper that, uh, the one study that compared with balloon angioplastic, and in that case, as expected, it did show lower stenosis with drug-coated balloons, although the overall TLR was numerically but didn't reach statistically significant. So the message here is that the drug-coated balloons are better than, than standard balloons and small vessels, but they're um, about the same as drug eluting stents, with the advantage that we can talk more down the line that you don't have the metal platform staying inside the vessel, which can be pretty challenging to treat if there's recurrent stenosis, more layers of metal in a small vessel, something we really don't want to see. Um, sure. Uh, and, you know, this is, um, you know, a question which you know, has come to my mind on several occasions, I'm, I'm sure it's come to others' minds as well, or at least I would hope so, is, you know, what is the exact mechanism of action for preventing, uh, you know, restenosis once you use a drug-coated balloon? I understand that there is abluminal delivery of the drug, um, which, you know, coats the surface of the balloon, um, you know, into the vessel and the lesion. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can maybe delve a little bit, little bit more into the, the mechanism of, you know, how long does the drug stay in the vessel and what is the, what is the concept behind uh, treating such lesions with, uh, you know, just a drug-coated balloon. I, I understand that the idea is to not keep the metal because, um, you know, as we all know, that has long-term implications with regard to instant restenosis, uh, particularly when... Um, the acute lumen, ga lumen gain is not significant. Um, so if you can discuss a little bit more about the mechanism, I think that'll be very interesting for our listeners. This is a very, very interesting question, Anchor. And uh, this goes back to when the drug-coated bones were first even thought about or invented, and those was, that was around like 2003. And uh, I would say that the size in that was that even preceded the drug eluting stents. And the idea was to deliver the drug to the vessel wall uh, by any mechanism and um, avoid putting in a metal in there. And the uh, way, and then the, the discovery of drug eluting stents and uh, using the stents to deliver the drug. Uh, all this uh, went contemporary with the, with the development of is there another way to have a stent-free delivery system and uh, use that delivery system to put the drug, the anti-proliferative drug, into the vessel wall without 
leaving a metal behind. And uh, the drug-coated balloons are, I'd say, an ingenious technology. They use the regular balloons, angioplasty balloons, and uh, we mount the drug using an excipient. So the drug sticks to the balloon, and then we deliver the balloon to the lesion that is well prepared, and when we inflate the balloon, the drug actually is uh, delivered to the vessel wall, and it is kept in the deepest layers of the vessels, and does not stay in the endothelium, unlike some of the drug loading stents. So that allows endothelialization very well, but the drug stays in the vessel wall, and uh, uh, I would say the half-life and the duration of the drug being in the vessel wall, this depends on so many things, like CT is one of them, the, how prepared the region was and the manufacturing process of the drug code of room, which is different among all the manufacturers. But we can say that if it, the drug uses Paxitaxel, the uh, current excipients used in the second generation drug code of room, the drug stays for about two months in the vessel. And the difference between the drug code balloon and the drug loading stand is the drug loading stand depends on uh, slow and consistent delivery of the drug in a very low dose, while the drug code balloon depends on uh, an initial high dose of delivery to the vessel wall that degrades time. And as we know, the restenosis process uh, is exaggerated in the earlier phase of after the procedure then that might make sense that while using the drug or bone might help reducing the stenosis a little bit. In some opinions, that stenosis uh, can take up to six months, and uh, that's why we need uh, continuous delivery of the drug, and that's why drug delivery stance might be associated with a little bit more better angiographic outcomes. But uh, the idea here is if we leave no metal, this finally ends up in same uh, mace and um, You know, thanks, Mike, for uh, going through uh, that mechanism. That's an excellent explanation. And, you know, I think to complement that explanation, uh, I'd like to guide our listeners to, um, or direct our listeners to figure one uh, in the manuscript, which is a very well put together figure, you know, which goes over schematically uh, the mechanism um, of action for drug coated balloons. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, Mike talked to us about, you know, them being smaller in profile, promoting plaque reduction and stabilization, vascular healing, um, with the caveat then that there is a lower risk of restenosis uh, with use of shorter duration of dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, let, let me um, ask you this question, and, and you know, this, this may be a provocative question, but you know, the question is, and, and Manos, you sort of alluded to this uh, being off-label uh, in use. You know, I mean, it seems like we've decent data, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you look at table one, you, you've these randomized control trials. Granted that uh, the denominator is not, a, is not a significant one, or at least the ones that we're used to in, in the cardiovascular medicine space. But, you know, there is at least safety and efficacy data, um, if not longer-term follow-up. Why haven't these um, balloons made it to our shelves for you know commercial use? So good, good point. I mean, there's clearly a clinical need, as you pointed out. There is a clinical need for, I would say, for mainly for instant stenosis, because right now when 
sensor stenosis, especially with multiple layers, the next step is brachytherapy. And there's also a clinical lead for small vessels and potentially some smaller side groups like side branches or bifurcations, etc. It's clearly clinical lead. However, those are regulated as a medication and it's not an easy approval from the FDA. I know of several attempts to put the studies together to bring this for clinical use, but because of the amount of data and the studies and the cost that will be required, I think versus the anticipated proceeds from the test, I think that has been a challenge for the companies to bring this forward to clinical use. So hopefully it will come in the future. There's again, as you said, a clinical need, but I think it has to do more of a business decision rather than the clinical part of this. Um, do you use them in your practice off-label? I mean, is there uh, at least, um, you know, under special circumstance for patients, uh, you know, if you've expended all other options for revascularization, is there any um, window of opportunity for using these, stand, uh, using, using these balloons um, in, in clinical practice? It is extremely challenging. So we have used them. But let's not forget, these are peripheral balloons as small as like 4.0, I think by 20 or 30. So if these are big balloons, extremely bulky, these are uh, very hard to advance over the 014 guide wire. Sure. So practically, you can only get them to like a proximal part of a coronary or get them through a large saphenous vein graft. And there's no, not even a, a, you know, it's never going to happen to get it down to a small vessel. So for small vessel disease, it's not an option. However, for extensive stenosis for larger vessels or subvenous vein grafts, we've done it off-label. Uh, we have to use a lot of techniques and, and uh, tips and tricks to improve support and get it down. So it was not a fun procedure, but it can be done. Once again, it's not practical, and, and of course, we don't know about the uh, dose you actually deliver. If it takes you one minute to deliver, two minutes to deliver the stent of the balloon to the target site, did the drug come off the balloon? I mean, there are many, many limitations. So can we do it? Yes. In reality, though, it's a very select patients, and these are very cumbersome procedures. Sure. Uh, I'm going to use the opportunity of having you on the podcast, Manos, to just go over with us the technical aspects of, um, you know, you, uh, you know, technical aspects of delivering these balloons, uh, you know, down large vessels. I mean, what are some of the tips and tricks that you utilize in the, in the cardiac catheterization laboratory for, um, you know, making sure that you get by these procedures? I think that'll be something which the, which the listeners would love to listen from you? Sure. It's, the, the, the main things are the same for delivery of anything big and challenging delivery device. So first of all, you need to go with big guys. So if friends is standard, and you want to be femoral access, you have better support. Uh, you want to use, in some vein graphs, we actually have used the glide wires, or larger profile, uh, uh, like thicker wires, but uh, if you use the standard um, um, 014, then uh, we want to um, be as deeply engaged as possible. So if it's a vein graft, we deep seed the guide all the way to the lesion, essentially. If it's a coronary, let's say right coronary, we want to deep seed the guide again almost all the way down to the, um, all the way to the vessel. Um, a lot of uh, strong support, so the two-hand technique, one hand pushes the guide forward, the other hand advances the uh, balloon. And then uh, a lot of patience to be able to do it. And, of course, before we do any of that, we want to predilate the lesion as much as possible. If it's instantaneous stenosis, which most of those are instantaneous stenosis, this, this will not go unless you've done big balloons, CO4O, you really expanded the vessel very, very well, and everything is flying down. So strong guide support, 
strong guide wire, sometimes uh, things like the Grand Slam, the Wiggle Wire, Ironman, uh, very, very stiff wires, strong support. Then excellent lesion preparation with balloons or modified balloons, just make sure it's as expanded as possible. And then obviously we get the smallest and shortest balloon most of the time, which are the four of the shortest potential length. So doing all this combination is still difficult, but it works for most cases. And is there any, um, any special anticoagulation strategy that you use or would you just do it on you know, intravenous and fractionated heparin targeting an activated clotting time over 250? seconds or do you want to keep it to over 300 seconds? What is your, what is your practice in the lab? Yeah, we have a few of those, but we usually go standard uh, the coagulation to 50 to 300 for most of the time. Okay, terrific. Um, well, you know, thanks for going over those steps. You know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, our listeners would, would take that as a, as a treat, you know, coming from you. Um, in conclusion uh, to the podcast, what are some of the take-home messages you'd like the listeners to take out of this uh, discussion and also the paper? Uh, and, you know, thank you for bringing up the meta-analysis that uh, you know Mike put together, um, um, which you know I think uh, is an important addition to, to the literature. Um, you know, maybe you can go over some of the uh, take-home points or concluding messages. Um, you know, from this podcast and from the paper that you published in U.S. Cardiology Review? Right, so I'll say three things. The first thing is that small vessels remain a problem. Uh, despite what we have, the second-generation regulatory stems, I think you still get in clinical practice a non-insignificant amount of restenosis. Second point is that all the regulating stems is all we have in the United States. Drag-coated balloons seem to have similar outcomes and it would be preferred in most cases if we had them given the lack of a metal uh, uh, a metal frame into the coronary artery and third building on the second that you know it can be done uh, drug coated balloons can be done in very selected large vessels but the biggest thing is the need for finally getting a DCB in the coronary market in the United States Excellent. Uh, thanks for the excellent summary um, of our discussion uh, there, Manos. Uh, I'd like to thank both you um, and Mike for uh, making the time to um, come and uh, talk to us and you know, share uh, both um, you know, historical perspective as well as um, you know, new data and uh, practical tips and clinical application um, of this uh, technology. Uh, thanks again uh, for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.